G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. How about yourself? Yeah, going well. Going well. I'm excited for a bit of a, a quick episode here today for the, the podcast, which we've called Dealing with a Driving Phobia. And we thought we'd do this little, I suppose, mini podcast is a bit of a follow-up to last week's podcast, which we did on panic attacks. So, Dad, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, we've previously done podcasts, as you say, on anxiety, like expunging anxiety. Last time we did one on panic attacks, we've done another podcast on phobias. But this is a very specific situation, a specific phobia. And we thought we'd do this because there's been a very positive response to a video that we've been involved with that maybe demonstrates some strategies or principles about how to look to address or deal with the driving phobia. And well, yeah, as you said, Dad, so we've actually got this video on our, our YouTube page and our website, and it's the most popular video by some way. So it's got you know, tens of thousands of views at this point, which for us is huge, Dad. You know, we are, you know, not the, uh, we don't necessarily garner the most views out there, but for this video in particular, it, it has gotten quite a response. And, and the response in the comments section, particularly, that I noticed from a lot of people saying, you know, I'm going through this exact situation, or, you know, this seems to really relate to what I feel when I'm in this situation. And, and I suppose one of the things that stuck out to me about that at the time was I wasn't necessarily aware that driving phobias were as prevalent as they seemed to be. Yes, and one of the reasons it is a more common phobia is because a number of different types of experiences can lead to a driving phobia that we'll go through shortly. But I think one of the things that was so helpful about that video that was from Destination Happiness, a TV show that we were involved with a number of years ago, where I was the resident psychologist on that show. But what was so helpful is the host of that show, Angie Hilton, was very honest and upfront and courageous in facing a situation on camera that was dealing with her driving phobia, particularly driving at heights. And so going along the ocean road was a challenging kind of situation that brought up some anxiety for Angie, but how she dealt with that and how she expressed herself in the experience itself is something that many people can relate to. We know from comments about that video on the internet, many people have said how they related to that kind of experience. And so that's where we thought we might talk about some of the principles on this podcast, some of the principles that can help people deal with a driving phobia. And I think the other thing that is maybe pertinent to a driving phobia, like it seems like a good example in some ways, because those causes that you mentioned, which we'll go through in just a moment, like it seems to me that one of the things about, I suppose, that video and the, and the way that Angie went through it, it didn't necessarily matter what her individual reason for not wanting to drive was. It seemed like the way to manage with that, the way to get through that would have been similar regardless of what it was individually for Angie that was, I suppose, leading to a bit of anxiety when she was driving. Yes, well, whatever has led to people's driving phobia or however they've experienced it, there are going to be a few features in common. One is the definition of a phobia itself. It's a persistent fear. It's an exaggerated and intense fear that causes some distress and has some negative impact on someone's life. And one of the challenging things about dealing with this intense fear that the person knows is exaggerated in some way, it's not maybe realistic, yet the fear is real. Basically, if the person is looking to reduce that level of phobic distress, reduce the fear, 
is a challenging situation. Generally, it means that people will need to face the situation. Often it's best to do that bit by bit so as not to make it too overwhelming. But basically, if people are looking to deal with a phobia, including a driving phobia, the main psychological strategies for addressing it, to face the fear, potentially bit by bit, and hopefully forearmed with some strategies to help manage with anxiety. And is it the case then that, say for example, I've got a driving phobia, is then the best way to get over that, for example, you know, just get back behind the wheel and sort of put yourself in that situation and kind of see how you go? Like you mentioned about potentially kind of gradually working it up there, but like how does one go about, I suppose, not wanting to, you know, overwhelm yourself in that situation in terms of it's a legitimate fear that we've got in the first place? Okay, well, a few things that'll make a difference is, first of all, understanding something about your own fear or phobic reaction itself. What might have contributed to it? If people have a bit of a handle on it or some idea why they might have that fear so they can be a little bit more accepting of themselves with it, a little bit more accepting of the fear, that can put people in a better position when they look to tackle it. Then it's important to have some anxiety management strategies to be able to deal with the challenge of facing the situation at the time. That can include breathing techniques or coping self-statements, other strategies that way. And then the key principle is what you're really on about is you're looking to create the situation where you have some kind of coping experience going through the challenging situation. We're aiming for coping rather than mastery. You don't have to feel on top of it but you're aiming for the situation where the person can be driving in particular situations that they may be used to avoid or feel intensely uncomfortable in. The person can face that situation and after they've faced it, have a sense of, well, I managed with that. That was worthwhile. I'm making progress. It's partly where the person ends up after having faced the situation. You're looking for the person to feel a little bit more confident in their ways of facing it a little bit less anxious, maybe about facing it. And so you look to stack the odds in your favour of making it more likely that will happen. So that basically means being better prepared in the first place and strategic about what you take on. You don't want to take on more than you can chew or just be overwhelmed, nor do you just want to take forever to face a fear in such tiny steps that you're not really making progress. Part of the art of it, and that's partly where therapists can help, but people can find also some balance for themselves, it's how you look to, in a sense, push yourself step by step where you're going to be facing a level of discomfort. It might be a level of 7 or 8 out of 10, level of discomfort, not a 10 out of 10, but not a 2 out of 10, where you're actually looking to chip away at the phobia by finding that, wait a minute, that was really uncomfortable, but I could face that. And let's go through maybe some of the the causes behind why someone could have a driving phobia in the first place, because it seems that maybe some of the self-talk that we tell ourselves, if we can relate it to that I suppose, initial cause, like it seems to me that that could be something that's beneficial. So what are some of those causes that someone could potentially have a driving phobia? Okay, a few of the main ones, one of the more obvious ones is if someone has had a car accident and afterwards developed a fearful response of getting back in the car. We can understand that, but for many people, the basic principle will be like that idea, if you've fallen off the horse, 
get back on the horse. Now, you might be strategic about how you do that. You pick your time. You pick a safer time to drive. You just drive a shorter distance. You have a supportive person with you. You stack the odds in your favour getting back to it. But after a car accident, it's understandable that a number of people would feel at least a bit wary getting back in that situation again. If people, in addition to some understandable weariness, have developed, for example, a post-traumatic stress disorder after a car accident, so they might have nightmares about it or significant reactions like that, it was a maybe very life-threatening accident, then people might do with some psychological therapy to help deal with the underlying trauma reaction as well. But ultimately... Again, part of the benefit will be strategically, step-by-step, getting back to driving. Another one would be if people have a fear of heights or falling. So that'll be particularly if people have a fear of driving over bridges or driving in other places where there are heights. But people often also have other examples of fears of heights. For example, they wouldn't get in a hot air balloon might be another example of that. And then another one... and probably one of the most common ones related to what we talked about in the podcast last week is panic attacks. People can be fearful of driving and having a panic attack where escape might be difficult. For example, they might be fearful of being in heavy traffic. They might be fearful of driving, for example, the Geelong-Melbourne Road, a highway where they're not sure they're going to be able to stop easily, or perhaps on the Westgate Bridge would be another example. So it helps to get at the source of the phobia, if you like. Like if people have a fear of driving over the Westgate Bridge, is it the fear of heights itself or is it more a fear that escape would be difficult if they had a panic attack? When you get an idea of what the source of it is, then you tend to make the most progress. Generally, by looking to face the fear step by step, but if people also have, for example, a trauma reaction from a car accident, there could be ways of undoing some of the trauma memory impact some of the trauma reaction if people have a fear of panic attacks whilst driving then addressing the panic attacks like we talked about in the podcast last week that can help so as you were saying it does make a difference if we understand the source of it well it seems that trauma is its own thing because you know exposure to trauma that in itself seems like its own thing off to the side that's maybe best done with a therapist but i suppose that idea of kind of facing the fear, like that's probably where some of the relaxation techniques and arousal management techniques that we spoke about last week come in. So things like slowing your breathing and having a mantra and I suppose keeping yourself in that present moment at the time, like it seems like they they could really help in that situation. Yes, because a phobia is an anxiety disorder, the basis of it is anxiety, that high arousal level. Anything that we can do to lower our arousal level before or during the situation itself can help. So that means that if people have a phobia and they're looking to face a challenging situation, starting off before heading out by looking to lower your arousal level to some extent by, as you say, things like slow breathing, looking to relax your muscles or let go tension from your muscles, deciding to take off slowly, if you like, deciding to initially take on less challenging than more challenging situations. And you say with a mantra, if someone can say to themselves something like, I'll be okay, or take it easy, or I can do this. Again, the notion is a coping approach rather than a mastery approach, but those general anxiety management strategies will help. And so it seems to me, Dad, that a big part of exposure therapy that we're talking about now is the reflection side of things. Like 
it's one thing to put yourself in that situation where you know you, it induces panic and we are facing our fear, but it seems that unless we kind of go, oh, you know what, I actually dealt with that okay and I, I got through it, unless we have that kind of consolidation afterwards, well, then potentially we're just you know contributing to the distress in terms of you know putting ourselves in that situation and further, I suppose, consolidating that's a negative experience. So. Do you have any tips for how to go about that reflective process? Yes, well, that's something we'd really like to highlight in this episode because it is really challenging to face a phobic situation, even if people do it step by step. And so you want to get, in a sense, the most out of it when you put in that kind of effort. And so a lot of it comes down to what you say to yourself after you've faced a situation. So when we talk about self-statements, sometimes people think of a mantra at the time or preparing themselves beforehand, like, I can do this, this is worth doing. But a lot of how people go with phobias and what progress they make is how they interpret their experience of having faced the situation. Now, just say if it's gone reasonably well. The important thing is for people to really encourage themselves with that and say, that's great I did that. That was really worthwhile. Even though I struggled and I had some panicky feelings along the way, I got myself to be able to do this. That's really worthwhile. I'm making progress. Something along those lines, like being encouraging. Along the lines of, look, I did it. I got by, I coped. Even if you only coped with 80% of what you're aiming for and you didn't go quite as far as you thought you might. Still really appreciating what you've done. Yes, I've made that progress. As opposed to, oh, thank God I've got through that. Thank God that's over. If people just tell themselves afterwards that they're just really relieved because it's over, that can actually reinforce the fear and make it worse. It's important to say to yourself something encouraging. Now, that also means that if a situation didn't go quite as well as you liked, and so if the person still felt more panicky than they expected to or didn't achieve a goal of facing a certain situation, they didn't go as far or they didn't even drive off in their car, but they just sat in it for a few minutes before heading off. In the first instance, the person can still say to themselves, well, look, I'm glad I'm making an effort with this. I'll take it step by step. That's okay. And then if people have achieved part of what they aim to do, say, well, at least I've achieved that. That's a real step on the way. So it's how we construct whether we experience ourselves as making some progress or whether we just think, again, thank God that's over, that kind of relief. Or the other thing is if people are there going through the motions but not noticing or appreciating what they're doing, it's better in a way to feel some of the discomfort and anxiety but recognising that you're coping with it, bearing with it, getting through, than to overly look to numb oneself or zone out while you're facing a challenging situation. So part of it is allowing yourself to be present with your discomfort. You're allowed to have discomfort and some anxiety symptoms, but in taking it step by step, as you have chipped away at that challenge, it's giving yourself encouragement afterwards and hopefully having someone with you, a support person, who's also being encouraging in that way. 
That reminds me of a slightly different thing in a way, but I suppose it speaks to this notion of how you can have multiple interpretations on something that you've done in a way. And like I've got a friend who literally dad goes to the gym or, you know, basically goes for a run literally seven days a week, like super sort of fit fella. And I remember he said one time that quite often he'll go to the gym, literally go there and go, nah, not feeling it today. And then literally just walk out straight away. But he doesn't give himself that option until he's gone to the gym sort of thing. And I suppose... Some people could probably look at that and go, oh, you know, I had a lazy day. Like, oh, I had a day off going to the gym. I didn't achieve what I want. But then he just walks out happy as Larry, even if he hasn't done, you know, as much as he wanted to and goes, I got to the gym on a day that I didn't want to. And that's just his kind of paradigm that he lives in. And so, you know, even on the days where, you know, he quote unquote lets himself down, He's still been able to interpret it in a way where he thinks to himself, oh, yeah, like, you know, good on me for that sort of thing. So I suppose it's different in some ways, but it suggests to me that, you know, I'd probably look at that and, you know, if I went to the gym, went to all that effort, you get there and you go, no, I'm not feeling today, I'm going home. I'd be feeling rubbish on the way home going, oh, you know, why didn't I follow through, all this sort of stuff. But clearly he was able to, to interpret it in a way where, you know, kept him coming back and it was a positive interpretation for him. I think that's a really good example of someone who's developed a way of thinking beyond all or nothing thinking. And a lot of anxiety-related thinking can be black and white. We can overgeneralise from a situation, like maybe had one attempt to face a situation and then said, oh, look, this never works out, overgeneralising, forgetting the last two attempts and how the person might have made real progress. Or also that all or nothing thinking. Either I achieve 100% of what I set out to do with this challenge or I've failed 0%. Yes, recognising those steps we have taken and encouraging ourselves for that that will make a big difference to the motivation next time. It'll make a big difference to what we call our self-efficacy. So when dealing with phobias, it's about our distress levels and our self-efficacy. Our distress levels, we could even estimate on a 0 to 10 scale. 10 is the most distress we've ever felt, 0 is no distress, and 5 is moderate distress. As we face situations again and again and again, we will tend to find our anxiety reduce, well, at the time itself... Our anxiety might have reached a peak of 8 or 9 out of 10 even, and it gets down to a 3 or a 4. That's fantastic. When we've halved our level of anxiety from the peak to where we ended up, we're permanently undoing some of the anxiety reaction if we give ourselves acknowledgement for it. And the other side is self-efficacy. That is one's confidence of facing a situation and managing with one's discomfort. So I'm 80% confident of being able to drive the 5Ks to the swimming pool or something like that. If people actually do that again and again and again, their confidence will go up from initially it might be 20%, then it might be 40-50%. If people keep on facing it and giving themselves encouragement, generally their self-efficacy, their confidence will increase partly because they've actually had the experience of doing it and getting by. The best way to build the self-confidence is to experience yourself as having faced the situation and managed it. And that's not just what we've done, but how we've appraised the situation, what we've said to ourselves about it. And another aspect of self-efficacy is it's something that we can almost improve in the sense of we can give ourselves tools to make ourselves more confident too. So, so have you come across any examples where maybe people do employ tools to help give themselves more confidence in a situation? Okay, look, one 
example that I will use because the person broke it down so well using self-statements. There was a fellow I saw quite a number of years ago who had had a car accident and a brain injury in the car accident as well. Now, he'd been assessed by an OT and others through driving programs. They knew that he had the capacity they believed to drive, so in terms of safety, but he still had a fear reaction with that. Now, this fellow did have a fairly significant brain injury, so he had a good understanding of his reactions and all the rest of it, but it also meant that his memory was a little bit compromised. He was a touch slower in some of his movements, but still competent to drive. Now, he used something involving self-statements to help his memory. Before he started off in the car, and I went for a number of times with him, I would sit with him and we'd just practice driving for a short distance. And before we started off, he'd written out a couple of self-statements and he taped them to the dashboard. So he could see these self-statements that from memory were something along the lines of, I'll be okay and breathe. Just say it was that. Now, just by having these little simple self-statements, this is worth it, I can do this, just focus on what I'm doing. And as he'd drive, he would tend to have that notion of just focus on what I'm doing, realising that if he had that thought in his mind, that would help reduce other distracting thoughts. So the fact that he had them written there, he'd also start off, before we'd take off, he'd have his hands in his lap, just settle back, take a few slow, deep breaths, and he'd look to drive off slowly. That's one of the things when you have a phobic reaction, people can tend to rush. It can help to take it slowly. And so as he gradually took off down the street, I'll maybe give him a little bit of an encouraging word or something like that as he just started off, and he'd keep on going. He did that a number of times, and you could see his confidence increasing quite quickly because he was quite capable of driving and he had the experience of managing with that in a particular area and then he continued that with if you like homework he practiced that between sessions from home now he gradually made very good and steady progress again he drove safely he drove conservatively but then he was able to increase his range even though he had a brain injury, that in a way can tend to slow learning and memory, but he allowed himself to go through it very methodically. And one of the things that struck me is it was a relatively pure way of applying the principles. He was going to face the challenging situation, start off by slowing his breathing, getting his arousal down, giving himself some encouragement, and then looking to focus on what he was doing. He allowed himself to feel some discomfort while he did it. So it was easy afterwards to give him encouragement for that, but I noticed the way that he gave himself encouragement. Now, he would have some kind of way of saying to himself, I did it, or that was worth it. And so he was able to make that more steady progress. But yeah, I always remember that as a really good example of using self-statements in a very practical way. Well, it seems a yeah, really practical and yeah, novel way of, of reverse engineering some of these principles. Like that's what comes across to me in a way is that he's, he's taken many of the principles that we've spoken about over the last couple of podcasts and and oh, I suppose made it easier for himself with little visual cues and that sort of thing but I think that also comes across in the video with Angie as well dad in terms of 
you know, confidence sort of builds up and she does a great job at the end to, uh, to basically, you know, take on the challenge of driving by herself in a situation that would have been very fearful for her hours later. So it is very interesting to see that process play out in that video. So we'll pop the link for that one up on the episode page for today at sykespills.com.au. But I suppose just one final one to finish uh, for me, Dad. Talking about all this, it reminds me of something that I, I heard recently about actually elite endurance sports people. And someone was talking about, you know, elite sports people like, for example, Michael Phelps and, you know, people who run the marathons, all this sort of stuff. And they said there's two types of elite endurance sports people. There's the ones who can basically deal with lactic acid really, really well. They, you know will be swimming as hard as they can and, you know, they'll be in absolute agony. But the way that they deal with that is so much better than the normal person. But then the other type of elite athlete is the one who just simply doesn't get as much lactic acid. And so, of course, they're able to deal with it because they're not in as much pain as you or I would be in that situation. And it seems to me that, you know, like facing panic and exposure therapy, all this sort of stuff, like in some ways what we're trying to do is kind of build us up as one of those two kind of types of athletes in a way in terms of maybe whether the exposure therapy that we go through facing the situations it seems that that's going to help us alleviate our anxiety a little bit and help it maybe come down so it's not as distressing to sort of deal with that amount of anxiety but then the other approach is almost maybe a little bit say proactive in skilling ourselves up to be able to dissipate the anxiety like for example Michael Phelps I believe is someone who can basically clear lactic acid incredibly well from his body so it seems to me that yeah like almost what we're trying to do is learn how to deal with it in terms of you know a little bit like the lactic acid is a swimmer we want to be able to you know swim as fast as we can and not be held down by that but also we want to be able to kind of move it on when we're in that situation we don't necessarily want to be stuck with it we don't necessarily want to be stuck with you know the feeling of lactic acid as we're swimming down the pool we want some way to dissipate that and it seems that yeah, it's almost twofold in terms of how we can approach it. We can approach it in terms of, you know, boosting up our ability to kind of hold panic and anxiety, similar to how athletes do with lactic acid, or we can learn to dissipate it and get rid of it quickly when it does arise. Yeah, well, maybe one parallel to that, one thing I have seen with many people is if they do chip away at a phobic reaction, like they face the feared situation, which is that first thing in a sense of dealing with the lactic acid, like dealing with the anxiety. Unfortunately, most people with phobic reactions are going to most likely, if they've had the phobia for a long time, need to chip away at their discomfort over quite a period of time. But a number of people do reach a point where the anxiety can drop away. Like one lady I know, she had a fear of driving over bridges in particular, She'd been chipping away at the discomfort, facing that in many ways. She'd been using the strategies, including the self-talk. Well, one day, she drove into a therapy session and she said something that she'd seen on the way. And I asked her, wait a minute, which way did you drive in today? Which route did you take? She said, oh, yeah, I drove over the Barwon Bridge. Now, that used to be one of her main feared situations and she'd actually forgotten that she'd done that, that she'd driven there on the way through because she used to use a different route to avoid this main bridge. Now, what had happened is she'd chipped away for a period of time and got such confidence that at a certain point, 
the distress dropped away. I've also seen an equivalent thing happening with panic attacks. People have chipped away at it, looked to face the panic over quite a period of time, and then later on they've said, oh, yeah, I was in this situation, then I felt a bit panicky, but then I thought, no, that'll go away, that'll be okay, and then they move on. And I stop and I say, wait a minute, do you realise what you've said then? What? You've talked confidently about how a panic attack wasn't going to distress you too much. You didn't panic about the panic. It dropped away and the person thought, oh, yeah, it didn't bother me so much. Now, that's where we don't know. If people are facing a phobia, you don't exactly know how it's going to go in the long run, but you can gauge your progress to some extent by self-efficacy, your confidence going up or suds levels going down. The more people face the situation step by step and the more you acknowledge your progress, it is partly how you positively acknowledge that and give yourself encouragement for it. The more you face it, the more you give yourself encouragement, that makes it more likely that you'll have less of the anxiety to deal with in the, in the long run. Well, thanks again for chatting with me about all this today. Dad, we've got the website, uh, psychspeels.com.au, and we've got a whole range of resources about today's topic and panic as well, last week's topic too. So we'll put all the resources up there. But thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today. Dad, I look forward to next week. Look forward to next week, Rowan.